All right, amen. Finally got it working. Okay. Man, I don't know about you guys, but um, man, I love that song. That is... I, I don't know if you caught those lyrics in the bridge that I'm not gonna I'm not gonna bow to idols, but I'm gonna I'm gonna worship Jesus, right? I'm not gonna be formed by my feelings. I'm gonna hold fast to what is true. And then what a declaration, right? Christ be magnified in me from the altar of my life, right? That I don't know about you, man, but we could just sing that song for the rest of the morning, and I can just you know step off of here, and we can just sing that 400 more times. But we won't do that. What a, what a great tie into the scripture here this morning that we, as, the, as, as theologians would call it, the imago Dei, the image of God, we are the image of God, exists to magnify Christ from the altar of our lives. And so I'm just gonna continue to preach this morning from the word, what we've already been preaching through song this morning. And so if you have a Bible, go ahead and grab that, get that open to Luke chapter 20. If you don't have a Bible, that's okay. We'll have the scripture up on the screens as well so you can follow along. So our passage here this morning is, is, is happening just moments after uh, the parable that Jesus told that, that, that we studied last week. Uh, and so what I wanna do here this morning is I just wanna read all of it, right? The parable all the way through to our passage here this morning. So it's a little bit more reading than we're used to, but, but we'll do that together and then we'll dive in. So Luke chapter 20 starting in verse nine, and I'm just, again, just gonna read it all the way through. It says that Jesus began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. And when the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard, but the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant and they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty handed. And he sent yet a third servant and this one also they wounded and they cast out. And so the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I know I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and they killed him. And so Jesus asked the question, what then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and he will destroy those tenants and he will give the vineyard to others. And when they heard this, they said, surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. And this is our passage for this morning. So the, the scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on Jesus at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. And so they watched him and they sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something that he said in order to deliver him up to the authority and the jurisdiction of the governor. And so they asked him, teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. So is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? 
But Jesus perceived their craftiness and he said to them, show me a Roman denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? And they said, Caesar's. And so he said to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And then they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said, but marveling at his answer, they became silent. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, God, we're so thankful for your word. We're thankful, God, that, uh, that we're able to search um, just the deep things of your word and that, God, that you reveal them to us. God, we just pray, Lord, that you would speak to our hearts this morning. God, give us clarity, give us understanding, and, uh, and uh, Lord, help us to just know and love you better. And God, we just, we, we, we thank you, God. This is all for your glory in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, it's no secret that at this point in the gospel of Luke that the leaders of Israel, uh, they want Jesus dead. They, they want Jesus dead. He's sufficiently upset the established order. He's gained the popular vote among the people and he has pronounced warnings and judgments upon the religious establishment. And so uh, the, the, the natural reaction, I guess, to Jesus invading your world is just to murder him. Uh, and so that's what they wanna do. They wanna murder Jesus. And what is insane about this is that Jesus's adversaries here are literally becoming the tenants, the wicked tenants in the parable that he just told. They want to literally murder the son so that they can keep the vineyard for themselves. This is a tragic and an epic failure of God's people to listen to the word of God, to heed the warning, to allow it to convict their hearts and to submit their desires and their wills to the almighty God. And so they wanted to kill Jesus, but verse 19 says that they were afraid of the people. Again, Jesus had the popular vote. If they were to arrest Jesus in the presence of the people, that would be extremely unpopular. That would be a bad move for them. And so instead they decide to scheme and plot. And so verse 20 says that they watched him and they sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something that he said in order to deliver him up to the authority and the jurisdiction of the governor. The hope was that Jesus would just say something really stupid that would cause the Roman authorities to grab him, throw him in prison and do something to him. And so... They planted these spies who, it says, pretended to be sincere. They pretended to be followers of Jesus. Imagine this crowd right here with a bunch of spies in it. They were pretending to follow Jesus. And it was these spies amidst the crowd that asked this question in verse 21. So they asked him, teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but you truly teach the way of God. So is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar? So not only did they plant spies in the, cr in the crowd, right? Those spies came with loaded questions for Jesus, and in their minds, this was a lose-lose question because if Jesus was to answer, no, you don't have to pay taxes to Caesar, then, then that would make him an enemy of Rome and the authorities would seize him and throw him into prison and problem solved. 
But then if he was to answer, yeah, you should pay taxes to Caesar, well then that would immediately make him unpopular among the people because it was extremely unpopular to pay taxes to Caesar. And so they thought, man, we got him here. This is a lose-lose question. But then in verse 23, Jesus was able to perceive their craftiness and disarm the question. And what's stunning about this word craftiness is it's the exact same description that's given of the serpent in the garden in Genesis chapter three. Genesis 3.1 says, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And what did the serpent do with that craftiness? He used it to deceive Adam and Eve with loaded questions. It's not lost on me, and I don't think that it should be lost on you either, that Jesus is showing himself to be the greater Adam in this passage. See, where Adam and Eve were tricked by the, by the craftiness of that wicked serpent in the garden, Jesus is showing us that he's able to do what they could not, which is recognize the deception, resist the lie, and silence the enemy. And so the tragedy of this passage is that it's the chief priests and the scribes who take the place of the serpent. It's the religious leaders who are unknowingly doing the work of the serpent king. And listen, that's these guys' pastors. That's their elders. That's their Bible scholars And what should shake us to the core is that if these guys can be deceived, how much more can you and I be deceived? How how much more can those outside the church, that's, that's your counselors and your therapists and your educators and your politicians, your authors, your speakers, how many of us are deceived by TED Talks and the podcasts that we listen to and the books that we read or theologians on YouTube. If I had a dollar for every friend that I know that was went off the rails from listening to some clown on YouTube, well, I'd still be broke, but regardless. And our scripture for this morning is just an astonishing illustration of the people of God's insatiable lust for the position of God and the very real deception that can overtake and seduce us if we're not diligent to guard our hearts and our minds and to protect the image and the likeness that has been placed inside us by our creator. But while there's a very real warning for us to be on guard against the schemes of the enemy, and as much as I'd love to to preach that one this morning, that is not the main point of the passage. The main thrust of our passage this morning is one of identity and purpose. Jesus wants to show his people, and he wants to show us that we have been fearfully and wonderfully made. So what I wanna do this morning is I wanna take a look at what it means to be made in the image and likeness of God. And then I, wanna, I want us to unpack what that looks like as image bearers to render to God that which is his, All right? And so that's where we're going here this morning. That's our outline. And so with that, point number one is this. We were created in the image and the likeness of God. 
We were created in the image and the likeness of God. The religious leaders scheme and plot. They want to deceive Jesus. They send in these undercover agents to ask Jesus this question. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? But Jesus perceived their craftiness and he said to them, show me a Roman denarius. And he asked, whose likeness and inscription does it have? And they said, Caesar's. And so he said to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God, the things that are God's. I love what Jesus is doing right here, right, right, here, right? Because he, he knows that they know that he knows that they know the first five books of the Bible, which is Genesis, Exodus, uh, oh man, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, something like that. They know those, okay? They know the first five books of the Bible and it's clear in their creation account in Genesis that God desired to make man in his image and after his likeness. Genesis 1, 26 and 27 says this. And so God says, let us make man in our image and after our likeness. And so God created man in his own image and in the image of God, he created him male and female, he created them. It's also clear that God has inscribed his word on our hearts. Paul says in Romans 2.15 that those who do not yet know God still have the work of the law written on their hearts. And then talking about the church in 2 Corinthians chapter three, the apostle Paul says that they are a letter from Christ delivered by us written, not with ink, but by the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. It is clear that we have the image and the likeness of God written all over us. And so Jesus is in effect asking whose likeness and inscription do we have? And the answer is clear, it's God's. We were made in the image and likeness of God. And so if that's true, then that means that you and I have been given an identity. You and I have been given an identity. Too often we try to find our identity, our value and our worth in things like career. Or we try to find our identity in our title, whether that be as a mom or a dad or a husband or a wife or whatever. We try to find identity in relationship. Man, if I could just find that person, that one that's just gonna bring me my purpose and bring me my joy and bring me all the things that I want, I'll see you in the counseling office in six months. We try to find identity in how much money we have or how big a network of friends we have or what church we belong to or how big our house is or how many vehicles we have. Listen to me, those aren't bad things in and of themselves. But if, but if that's what you're using to find your identity, listen to me, those are, those are useless. They are useless, worth, worthless, soul-sucking, joy-stealing, miserable replacements for our identity. And if we try to find our identity in any of those things, you're gonna find yourself sad, broken, miserable, and alone, just a hollowed out version of who you could be. And listen to me, I love you too much to just leave you in that place. Right, you're the, you're the dang imago day, the image of God. That's your identity, not this other worthless stuff. And so 
Jesus uses this Roman coin to illustrate his point. You see, the value and the worth of the Roman denarius was given to it by Caesar. Caesar determined its value, Caesar determined its worth, and that value and worth was dependent upon Rome and ultimately upon the success or the failure of Caesar. See, if the, if the Caesar failed, then the Roman denarius failed, and if the, Caesar, if, if the Caesar succeeded, then the Roman denarius succeeded. Ultimately, the Caesars failed, Rome fell, and the Roman denarius became irrelevant. It lost its value and it lost its worth because it was created in the image of Caesar and Caesar didn't last. And similarly, we're created in the image and likeness of God. And that means that God gets to determine your value and your worth. What God says about you is true and our value and worth is dependent not upon our performance, but upon God who is faithful and God is faithful, isn't he? Unlike Caesar, God will never fail. That means that our value, our worth, our identity is fixed and it is sure. It is unchanging and it is unfailing because it rests upon our unchanging and our unfailing God. And so Caesar, he could care less about whether his denarius was sitting in a pristine mint box or if it was sitting in a sewer somewhere for 10 years, right? A denarius is a denarius. It's worth what it's worth. So wash the thing off and put it in the collection. So how much more then does God desire that which was created in his image and in his likeness? That's you, that's your soul, that's your heart, that's your mind, that's your will, Our identity is that of image bearers of God. So being created in the image and likeness of God gives us identity. It also gives us hope. It gives us hope. Being made in the image of God gives us hope in the midst of sin. There's, there's perhaps no place more hopeless than being enslaved to a lifestyle of sin. That's the ultimate addiction. Sin always takes us way further than we ever intended to go. It keeps us way longer than we ever intended to stay. And it costs us way more than we ever intended to pay. And so by the time we stop and look back upon the wreckage that is our life, there's nothing but scorched earth, broken relationships, and wasted time. It's easy at that point for despair to set in. But the hope is that we've been made in the image and the likeness of God. That's our hope. It reminds us that we can't outsin God's grace. We cannot outsin God's grace. Whatever gutter you find yourself in, and we all have them, just know that grace chases you down and pulls you out. God will stop at nothing to rescue you from your sin, to redeem your life because God cares about his image and his likeness. There is hope in that. There's hope in that. Sin does not have to own you. You don't have to be stuck in this lifestyle. If you want out, if you want freedom, it's yours in Christ. All it takes is for you to be willing and disciplined enough to pursue it. 
So sin doesn't have to own you. Sin doesn't have to define you. Look at me. You're not a lost cause. You're an image bearer of God. Some of you need to hear that this morning. Where sin runs deep, grace abounds. Again, you cannot outsin God's grace. You cannot outsin God's grace. I love this quote by Charles Spurgeon. He says this, if your sins be mountains, his love shall be like Noah's flood, covering it completely and redeeming you. So own your identity as an image bearer of God. That's what gets to define you. And sin does not have to destroy you. There are certainly consequences that come with sin. I'm not saying that that's not true. But that does not mean that your sin has to destroy you. God is for us. God is in us and God is with us. He can restore what sin has broken. He can redeem what sin has lost. Sin does not have the final word. The cross has the final word. And one day God will wipe away